0: to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up.
1: This podcast is proudly brought to you by B Corp Brewers Stone and & Wood and their not-for-profit arm, the Ingrain Foundation. Ingrained work closely with grassroots organisations on the environmental and social issues that are impacting their local communities. To find out how you can partner with Ingrained, head to ingroundfoundation.com.au. Hello,
2: and welcome to the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm Kirsty DeGarris, editor of Dumbo Feather magazine. Because you're here, you already know that we are more than a magazine. We're also a podcast a digital magazine and last week we had a great big in real life launch party event for issue 70 of the mag it was such fun and so wonderful to be in a room with a few hundred people again listening to live music and having conversations that involved looking into one another's eyes again it had just been way too long please join us next time this week's podcast is a conversation that also features in issue number 70 and it's between Barry and social philosopher jamie wheel He's the author of the bestseller, Stealing Fire, and in this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast, they discuss his latest book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. That title does make it feel like we're at end of times, but the conclusions that Jamie comes to are quite beautifully reassuring. I really hope that you enjoy the podcast. I did.
0: I was both embarrassed and really excited about your work because I was leaning into it and wanting to understand what meaning 3.0 could look like and can we get there? And then I'm like, Mm -hmm. come on, this process is ancient and we haven't gotten there yet.
1: Without slagging off modern techno-industrial society completely, I think it is fair to say that there have been all sorts of times in human civilization and cultures that have had a very functional working relationship with the sacred and the mundane. And if we just think of basically, A, 90,000 years of us doing the Homo sapiens and Neanderthal two-step, this a long ass time where we were in right relationship with our world in the sense of a coherent worldview that accurately reflected living and dying in community and in awe of the things beyond our ken. Then you could fast forward to 10,000 years and you're like, where were we hotter or colder? For sure, there have been some places, especially last few hundred years, especially carbon-based economies, consumer societies, all of these things, where we may have quite clearly lost more of the plot. You look at current events, and if you just take a hot take, you have no roots, no perspective. But if you're like, what is going on right now? Has that ever gone on any place ever before? Oh yeah, look, here, 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 and here. And then you're like, okay, now we've got a data set. And now we say, what are the coherent or unifying factors among them? What's the pattern recognition? And then what's the neurophysiology? Now that we know all the places it's happened through time and space, we have a transcultural perspective on the mechanisms of action. And we can take that little neuroanthropological recon mission. And now we can point it into the future, into culture architecture, where we're like, now we understand the Lego building blocks and we can snap together other stuff that also works. And that's a very fun, generative undertaking. It's a great shared project. And we know it's all going to work a lot better than if we were just trial ballooning stuff throwing spaghetti against walls, pick your metaphor, to see what sticks with no awareness of what's worked and what hasn't up to now. We're wiser and we're better builders when we play that dialectic of looking backwards and then building forwards.
0: I'm still processing the book. For most of us, we're in the morass of everyday survival and the small decisions. A lot of serious people paying attention to what you're saying for the greater good or for personal biohacking purposes.
1: Or just straight up cover their ass and head for the hills.
0: No doubt. We fantasize that we can protect our own or we'll get to an island or a planet somewhere else and we can start again. But no human consciousness can contain that kind of suffering. If we all go down, who's going to stay sane, even in your bunker?
1: what was the sort of bastard mentality that prompted you to do that in the first place, and you're taking it with you. So the odds of that being a Kumbaya moment are slim, for sure. You reference the book, the book is Recapture the Rapture. The intention of the book is threefold. To ask, where have we come from? A little bit of looking at how did we get to now? What's going on? Literally a situational assessment of the world today and for the next few decades that matter, like our lives and the lives of our kids. And then what do we do now? What are the most reasonable, provisional, courageous, compassionate, creative ways to play through? That's the bigger frame of the conversation that you and I have just jumped into.
0: Can you just walk us through meaning 1.0, meaning 2.0, and what meaning 3.0 is?
1: For sure. And even the precursor to that, which is potentially, hypothetically, make the case that we are in a bit of a crisis of meaning, but we are in that crisis at absolutely the worst possible time. And trying to map and model and predict what the hell comes out of that is damn near impossible. Because it's damn near impossible, we're like, okay, let's look to trusted authority sources to tell us what the hell's going on and what we should do. And both of those stair railings have just pulled off in our hands. The first one, meaning 1.0, we have always looked to organized institutional religion to tell us who we are, how we should be, and what are heaven and earth about. And then in the last handful of decades, really not until the 1990s and then accelerating since then have we had this massive decoupling of people's personal and cultural identity from their religious or organizational affiliation. And that seems completely normal to us, using our iPhones and driving our Teslas and commuting to work and Zooming all over the world. And in reality, it's completely rare. If you didn't believe the faith of your people, you were a heretic, an apostate, a pagan, a barbarian, you were the things that did not get all the rights and privileges of citizenship or belonging. You were often ruthlessly persecuted. To be outside that for almost all of human history was a non-starter. It was a very low prospect. And now more people than ever are actually self-identifying in that way. So that's a sea change. No sooner were we having this leaving traditional religious authority behind what you could call classical liberal structures, universities, science. Transnational organizations like the UN and the WHO and the CDC and all these things, all of these things have been crumbling in their institutional authority as well. So the roof is caving in between the two guardrails we used to have religion and science or religion in modern society. And in that vacuum, we're seeing people get sucked into fundamentalism of all stripes, and not just traditional religious fundamentalism. It could be, I'm a fundamentalist vegan. It could be, I'm a fundamentalist social justice. I'm a fundamentalist conspiracy theorist. Any hermetically sealed totalitarian belief system that's not subject to critique or inquiry, if they're not prone to that, they're quite likely just going to get overwhelmed with the onslaught and then succumb to nihilism which is like, none of this matters, or I can't fix it, or we can't change or shape it. And the diseases of despair we're seeing, depression, anxiety, suicide, and addiction, like all those things are happening. As we get pulled into, "Mm, there's nothing to hang my hat on, there's nothing to keep my faith. Meaning 1.0 was, it promised you salvation. If you believed in our God, you were saved. If you didn't, you weren't. Salvation at the cost of inclusion. And meaning 2.0, our modern world promised inclusion, Everybody's welcome, regardless of race, color, or creed, at least in theory. But at the cost of salvation, God is dead, and no one's going to tell you what all of this means. You're going to be swimming in material abundance and be more miserable than ever. And so the question is, can we create, can we blend them, the best of each, into inclusive salvation? Can we create a meaning 3.0? And what that would probably look like is nothing in particular and everything local and specific meaning 3.0 isn't actually a list of creed. It's much more, here's the Lego blocks. Here's this blockchain of conscious culture. And how do you create and architect it for yourself, for your community, for your belief systems, whatever that would be, just knowing that at least those Lego blocks do snap together and stack straight and that they work and you're not missing anything essential as you try and build something or revitalize an existing tradition.
0: I keep hunting for metaphors and the story of the future of us. It's just one of those flailing, useless activities you do when you're drowning. Meaning 2.0 is coupled with money. And that's still very tightly coupled. I'd love to talk about that, but I want to stay in Meaning 3.0. How do communities and individuals and families and municipalities actually apply this cultural enlightenment tool? I feel like you've mapped out how we might do this.
1: Well, I mean, we're going to have to, or we're just going to suffer longer more until we figure it out at some later date. Can we jump between the icebergs without slipping into the drink? Because the iceberg that we are on right now, it's a bunch of cycles all coming to the conclusion now. On the one hand, you have, say, 500 years of European and American colonial dominance, around the world. We just ran the tables, extracted everybody's natural resources. There were so many donor states to the empires as they've cycled through. Indigenous communities and people of color and everything else are like, this is a racket and we're done. And then even more acutely, what sort of put rocket fuel on that experiment was the moving from biomass as our sole energy source, meaning like burning wood, grass, animal dung, things like that, to Coal, a little bit denser, a whole lot more interesting, gave us the beginnings of the steam revolution to oil. And once we found and were able to extract and combust oil and internal combustion engines, it was a game changer. And we have set on fire 200 million years of starlight, buried, concentrated, and completely unrepeatable in a little over a century. That carbon pulse, that unlocking of extreme. And arguably, obscene amounts of kilowatts has given us everything we think of as modern civilization, and we're coming to the end of it. Like, no wonder life feels amazing, and I can do my Airbnb showing the mansions, and I can hopscotch around on planes, and we can go to the festivals, and we can do all the things, and we've got all these rare earth metals in our phones, and we're internet Wi Fi connected, and we can order things two clicks when it's there the next day. All of our models and theories of social sciences, behavioral economics, all the things of us trying to explain the way the world works are completely skewed by the fact that we have all been on a century-long coke bender and burning 200 million years of starlight all at once. And the question is, can we come to our senses that just as we're sputtering and the thing is starting to hitch and run out of gas, but going down the road, and can we then build the solar-powered spaceship? While we still have access to quantum computing, while we still have access to broadband, Wi Fi, and satellite networks and all of these things without crashing the entire system to the point where Einstein said, if the third world war is fought with nukes, the fourth will be fought with sticks and stones. Can we avoid that brutal step down in capacity? And can we navigate the transition smoothly to a different energy based society before we just stuff the nose in a really hard landing?
0: Yeah, anyone alive and awake in this moment is living all of this in our bones. And that aliveness is what everyone who reads Dumbo Feather is searching for. It's an orientation towards a hopeful future and also a personal way finding map yeah. <laughs> to keep us stepping over the trauma and the tragedy of where we're finding ourselves to navigate through the rubble to get to somewhere that we. Could craft and not just react to.
1: Well, my best advice on that is to get out of the fibrillated state of simultaneously frantic and bored because most of us are doom scrolling and freaked out. I think the bottom line now is if you're not putting roots in the soil and you're not forging your ride or die community, you're missing the boat. This is our moment of grace to be absolutely centering and focusing on the things that matter most and starting incredibly brass tacks. As the folks in Kyiv and Mariupol and, and you know, pick your other spot of tragedy around the world, you have to realize all too quickly, it's not happening with NFTs. Crypto isn't going to save us. Psychedelics aren't going to save us. We've had a good run of optimal conditions in the developed West for the last 75 years, and we've fucked it entirely. We are going over the falls exactly as we are with the same capitalist system, with the same dysfunctional government, with the same traumas in our psyches, with the same culture wars. This is us. And there aren't any hockey stick salvations. It's time to get bracingly real and then know that the sooner I act, the sooner I just throw the switch and I say, okay, I know enough to be dangerous. I know enough to start acting with clarity and focused urgency, not panic focused urgency. Do we have solar power so that I can stay connected to my phone and internet and backup? Do I have a ham radio and a hand crank by the radio? Communication's huge. Otherwise, we go from our collective mind and all that intelligence and all that information all the way back to me and my skull and the books on my shelf now and what I can see out my window. That's a massive degradation of intelligence. So maintain our connections to intelligence maintain our connections to potable water, because that's a bitch, right? You got all of three days without it, and you're just standing in line at a refugee camp or a fire station if you're on the wrong side of your pipes. Just that simple thing of be a Boy Scout, be a wilderness medic, have some basics, and then plant a garden, and then host some potlucks, and then get your social capital and start rooting with the people you care about and start having conversations that are better than the banal, who can outdo each other with whose kids' sports practices require more minivan road time. Have the conversations that you care about with the people that you care about and start re-knitting the social fabric as well. Grieve globally, but thrive locally. Pay attention to the state of things in the world and feel compassion, at send aid, encouragement, support, whatever it would be to whoever's hurting the most next. And at the same time, let's put all of our creativity and love and enthusiasm and spare time and resources into creating resilient local communities. Because as everybody experienced in the last couple of years, global supply chains aren't really a thing. What they gained in efficiency, they lost in redundancy and therefore stability. Everything was just in time, which meant one link breaks, the whole thing crashes. So a regression to bioregional localism is inevitable. And effectively, it's the oldest organizing method in the world, which is just a city-state with culture center governance finance surrounded by a hinterland of the ability to provide food, agriculture, raw materials, artisan crafts, et cetera, et cetera. That's overwhelmingly likely where we will be spending more of the next century than we have in the last century.
0: I've got these three beautiful kids. What's the right education for them now? I'm on board with everything you're saying. I've been working on all those things in community, in the world, telling these stories, interviewing you, having these conversations. I mean, we're not even getting to the book itself, but it doesn't really matter because what should we do with our kids now? Do we even yes. send them to school?
1: There's absolutely zero fucking point. First of all, do what the Maori do name and understand your watershed. What's your mountain? What's your river? What's your ocean? Where the hell are you, human, in space? First of all, root in place. Next, be useful and understand where does your food come from? Where is your water source? And what's my responsibility for maintaining those things? And then for the education for kids, it should always be as most practical and experiential as possible because they know when it's pointless. Teach kids, we're going to take something from seed to harvest. Teach them about the human body, not in an abstract way, but in hands-on wilderness medicine. Really, really fun, super interesting, very empowering. They'll never forget it. Teach them carpentry and mathematics and engineering and construction and how to build greenhouses to househouses, you know, to all of those things. Take them sailing and teach them how to navigate and teach them how to run and operate the systems of a boat, because that's a really good dry run on the systems for an independent house. Teach them history. How have humans always done this thing? What have the rise and falls of civilization been like and looked like? There's a book called The Knowledge by a guy who worked on the Mars colony planning expeditions for NASA. And it was pretty much how to rebuild civilization from scratch. I mean, it's just dying to have a high school companion manual to it because it's like, you'd need to learn metallurgy and we need to start learning smelting and we need to be able to create transistors and circuit boards. And here's how we do it from scratch. And I can't think of anything more interesting for young people. And you can scale this. My wife and I founded a Montessori school for our kids when they were little, right? And that's little three-year-olds working with sharp kitchen knives and learning stuff and doing complex mathematics with manipulable materials and that kind of stuff. There's so many different cool educational movements. A lot of them get wrapped around a lot of idealistic thinking and kind of preciousness. And And dogma. dogma. Yeah, they do. But The ability to rally a community, homeschool, functional school, just practical school of life. And it's not divorce of the arts, but it's not divorce of history and poetry and literature and other things and ethics, like how we live. What do we think we're doing? We're going to try and live simply. There's a two kilowatt society that started in Switzerland, and it's a bunch of people voluntarily reducing their energy burn to two kilowatts. Americans, for example, burn like 12 kilowatts, just setting dinosaurs on fire, but it's voluntary reduction to two kilowatts to say, hey, can we live this way? And how hard is it? Is our life harder or is it better? And overwhelmingly, the people and then the cities that have become the sponsoring cities, there's probably a dozen of them. And I think six of them are ranked in the top 10 of best places to live in Europe.
0: I love how you outlined how critical it is for us to expand our perspectives and process our pain. And I was relating it. You talk about so many things we haven't talked about, like hedonic engineering, which I loved. You refer to us needing to really face our pain in order to transmogrify it, like transform it. The pain itself is the transformation, suffering itself. If you're saying that we need to do that at a civilizational level to give birth to something hopefully really beautiful on the other side, but I guess we don't even know about outcomes. We have to detach from outcomes. How the hell do we stop the hedging?
1: Well, there's just that moment, right? The Old Testament version is Jonah and the whale. Jonah, I got a job for you. He's like, I don't want the job. It's too big. I'm fat. I'm happy. I'm a successful businessman. I don't want to go and save the sinners. So he hops a boat and then gets swallowed by the whale and then gets spat out with a second chance. Okay, I'm all in. And New Testament, which was when Jesus is just kicking off his whole apostolic recruiting drive, and so he gets to the Sea of Galilee, back to where he's from, and there's Peter and Andrew, I think, and they've just got brand new fishing boats and they're super fired up and they're like, "Yeah, we got brand new boats, brand new nets. We're going to go make bank." And then he's like, "When are you going to put down your nets and come be fishers of men?" And that question is the one that we are all facing or hedging right now. We are either heeding the call that, "Hey, optimizing widgets and doing high frequency day trades and and investing in crypto and all this is just silly distractions. And none of the things that I optimized to win at in this old game matter a damn. Not that they ever did. We all kind of knew they didn't. So we masked it with booze, with porn, with consumption, with whatever. But now we really know. And what is my role that is timeless and mine to do? And when I say timeless, We've always had healers. We've always had warriors. We've always had artists. We've always had teachers and midwives and some form of shaman or mediator of the sacred. We've always had these roles. We've always had farmers and builders. What is in service and what's mine to do? And the mind to do part is, you know, Marvel comics, there's Thor's hammer, right? No one can pick up Thor's hammer except Thor. And he can sling that thing around like it's made of styrofoam. Or Excalibur, no one but the one true king can pull that sword from the stone. So, like, what's yours?
0: I hear you. I'm, like, soaked in this question. I try to live into this every minute of the day. And most people I know regal away from even the beginning of that thought process. Now,
1: the heat will get turned up and we will suffer more until we pay attention. Using heroic examples with swords and hammers, it could be that my stand is to love my kids. Did you ever see that? Is it Berto Benini's film, Life is Beautiful? What a film. Right, where the father and the son are in the Italian concentration camp, and he just does backbends to keep his son in the illusion that this is all a fun game. I watched that as a young father, completely overwhelmed, and it broke my heart. But also I was like, oh, okay, that's what I have to do. I can't collapse Ralph Waldo Emerson if even one child breathes easier for you having lived. Then we've done our job. That's what I mean about the grieve globally, but thrive locally. Like the grieve globally is it's overwhelming. And then most people in our conversations these days obsess about, does it scale? Scale
0: versus intimacy.
1: Yeah. Back to Robin Dunbar at Oxford and his famous Dunbar number of 150 people. For 99% of all of human history, we have never scaled beyond 150 people ever. So if we allow ourselves to love the ones we're with, starting with kith and kin, saying, hey, we've got global problems, and we really need to elevate our consciousness to global consciousness, because that's how we'll solve these things. That's the classic trope. But if I could rewrite the book now, I would still say that. And then I'd say, once again, we've had a 75-year run at this. We did the 60s, we did personal growth, we did human potential movement, we've done all this self-indulgent self-help and got precisely fucking nowhere on that project. So as conditions degrade, we're not going to suddenly pull it out of our asses, friends. Okay, so now this is closer to I'm climbing a mountain or a snowy mountain, and I've just slipped. And I've got about three seconds to stick my ice axe into the snow before I'm accelerating at terminal velocity, right? So what is my ice axe? What is that pick that is going to hold me and prevent me or us from sliding down into the abyss? And that pick is a regression, not an aspirational or magical thinking, new age ascent to spiritual consciousness, don't think it's going to happen if it hasn't happened yet with optimal conditions. But it's a how do we regress to healthy tribalism? We know what unhealthy tribalism looks like. It's based on faith, all the religious wars, and it's based on blood, ethnicity. And those get ugly predictably. So the only healthy tribalism that I can think of is bioregional localism. We live here, we give here and we have enough in common with our neighbors, and this is another thing, right? And you guys may or may not be as fractured as the US is currently, culture wars. If I am aligned with my neighbor, because there's a fire coming, we're going to be aligned on that bucket brigade to keep our houses from burning down. We might have polar opposite political opinions. And then the next step would be, well, like, do we want our neighborhood to be safe and thriving? Yep, we can agree on that. Do we want Where our kids go to school to be lively and dynamic and safe and all these good things. Yep. Check, check, check. What about our city? Yes. What about our country? Nope. Boom. We're different. What about all sentient beings? What about vegan and no more plastics for animals? No, fuck you. I don't care about animals. Let's back off to the bucket brigade and our kids' schools. And can we agree to agree as far as we do and then work together in collaboration without it being Monolithic consensus on every single box to check on every single issue possible. And the reality is, no one's coming to save us. This is us. And so, in case if anybody gets disappointed by spineless politicians or greedy capitalists, you know, corporate CEOs, that kind of thing, it is also important to know that the system is even more broken than the people. Absolutely. Because The two biggest levers we have in modern society are markets and politics. We vote with our dollars and we elect people to change laws and shape things. And both of those decision-making loops are much, much shorter than the long hangover problems we're collectively facing. So politics, it's every two to four years. I mean, at least in the U.S., Biden had all of 10 to 16 months to take a run at whatever the hell he was going to try and do. And now he's jammed up against midterm elections, which will then leave him lamed up. Then all the politicians spend the back 60% of their term raising money and trying to get elected for the next one. So they don't do anything courageous or bold. So you've got two to four-year cycles there. And then on corporates, you've got you know everything from stock tweets and daily stock valuations all the way to quarterly reports you know, and that kind of stuff to publicly traded companies, neither of those tolerates or accepts any leader doing anything other than optimizing for short-term maximum return to shareholders or stakeholders, voters or owners. And so our entire system of steering is based on three-month to two-year cycles, which of course cannot fix things that are a century plus in the making.
0: All right. So, because we're meaning-making creatures, we have to, yeah. We're, you we know,
1: make meaning by telling stories.
0: You've mapped my whole life in this conversation. And I was late to the story. I only realized in my 20s that the gig was up. And then really trying to work with all the forms of capital to do the restoration, piece to arrive to some other story of humanity and to co-create that.
1: Can I share what I would hope that is a story that might work?
0: Yeah, go on. Please.
1: Wait. Oh, well, how about this? My current hypothesis is is that if we're just trying to process this as single individuals, I want my happy ending in my lifetime. We are likely just to get crushed by the weight of the world and the unfolding of events, because we're going to have to deal with all sorts of disappointments and postponements and deferrals. But if we go back to how people have always lived, which is intergenerationally, then my part is just a chapter and I'm carrying the light forward, not so that I get to bask in the full bonfire, but that I get to pass the torch to my children and to their children. And there's all sorts of studies that show that like kids who are connected to multiple generations of their families and their stories, they are less likely to have anxiety, lower depression, higher high school completion rates, higher test scores, less recidivism, better job prospects. We're just more durable when we are rooted and connected to multiple generations of our story. And a simple way is thinking seven generations, right? And that was kind of the Iroquois Confederacy idea of just, you know, any decision, think of seven generations. Even that's kind of abstract, but you can really, really ground it and be like, okay, my three generations behind me, my great grandparents, grandparents, and parents, I'm doing it for them. Like, thank you guys. Fairly certain your road was harder than mine. So thank you. And any blessings I've been lucky enough to stumble across or cultivate in my own life, thanks to you guys. So I want to pay my respects and honor the sacrifices that you gave on my behalf. And then three generations ahead of me, my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and I'm the center. And I am now doing this part. And there's that beautiful Talmud quote. I know the short one off the top of my head. It says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. This was written thousands of years ago. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. And then here's the kicker. You are not expected to finish the work, nor are you excused from it. Amen. Nobody promised us a rose god. In our late 20th century, early 21st century consumerist society, we were just brainwashed into thinking that any itch, scratch, or lack we could possibly imagine is there at the press of a button to be instantly soothed or saved. And it's not. And it never was. And there's way more courage and way more compassion and way more sacrifice and way more joy and way more creativity in us than we've been expressing lately. So it's the same as it ever was. And our parents and our grandparents showed the way. So it's really just shaking off that hypnotic days we've been in and just getting really, really rooted in the timeless basics of this human experience and loving the ones we're with.
0: Jamie, you're pretty special. I'm really, really grateful to have this conversation.
2: That was Barry in conversation with Jamie Wheal, author of Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. It's a big read and it's fascinating. Until next time, thank you for joining us on the Dumbo Feather podcast.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by Stone & Wood and their Inground Foundation, creating sustained positive change from the grassroots up.